0: Hello, my name's George Eldridge, and like you, I'm stuck in isolation because of the coronavirus. Unlike you, I accidentally went into isolation with my parents, who were both completely mad and very old. This is my diary. I've called it Stuck. How to Survive Accidental Isolation. Bob, 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 Bob. Mum ran into the room brandishing a wooden spoon and a frying pan. She appeared to be using the spoon to beat the shit out of the pan whilst anxiously searching for someone called Bob. Everything all right? I said, reluctant to tear myself away from my phone. We are not alone. Bob, Bob, Bob. She continued, running around and around in circles. Who's Bob? I said, barely a glance in her direction. It's not uncommon for my mother to perform strange, ritualistic dances now and again, especially at this time of year, and so I wasn't desperately put out by what was going on. Having said that, this one was going on longer than most, and instead of abating, the bawling and bobbing seemed only to be getting louder and more pronounced with every passing second. Mum, I said, closing TikTok. There is an intruder among us! Mum, just... she wasn't going to stop. We are isolating with a fourth party! Mum! I shouted, loud as I could. "'George!' She stopped the dancing and the banging and looked at me as if to say, "'Yes? How can I help you?' "'Mum!' "'George!' she repeated, standing freeze-frame, spoon in one hand, pan in the other. "'What?' she said. I looked at her, my eyebrows aloft, hoping praying I wasn't about to have to explain why I might be at all confused or put out by her behaviour. Seriously, I said. Oh, who is Bob? What's with the pan? What do you mean, who's Bob? She said, genuinely bewildered. I don't believe it, I thought. It's actually like living with toddlers. Right, okay, here goes, I began. About two minutes ago, you ran down the stairs into the room with those. I pointed at the spoon and pan that she was still holding above her head, poised for impact, banging them together, making quite a lot of noise. Do do, do you, are we on the same page? Yes, she responded. Matter of fact. Right, right, okay, and and, and you were, I, I don't know, you, you were dancing around with them, whatever, and, and at the same time you were saying, Bob, 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 really loudly, like like you were looking for someone called, oh, darling, no, gosh, looking for someone called Bob, no, silly boy, not Bob, 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 you know? <laughs> I waited for her to say something else to explain what on earth she was talking about. Alas, no. That was it. Sure. Yeah. Bob. Barb. Whoever. I went on. Patiently as I could. Whoever it is. Why are you screaming? Mice hate noise, darling. Now, although, under normal circumstances, I would have pursued my main line of inquiry all the way to its logical conclusion, that running around the house yelling and treating kitchen utensils like musical instruments is always unacceptable, whatever the objective, I think I just heard her say, Mice. Mice! They can't abide it! Hence the, you know... She began banging her makeshift weapons together again. Wait, where? This is not good, I thought. Daddy saw a a little field mouse last night in the bathroom cupboard in amongst the... In the bathroom... My bedroom is by the bathroom. No, this would not do at all, went my head. Where, Where the loo paper is, I asked. Keen to get all the relevant information as soon as I could, specific coordinates being crucial when it comes to rodent sightings in the vicinity of where one lays one's head. Exactly! <laughs> she began laughing uproariously. Give Daddy the most frightful jolt, Paula! There wasn't any loo roll left by the loo, you see! There are... <laughs> Am I missing something? Why are you laughing? She seemed to be finding the whole thing completely hilarious. He he must have had to waddle his way over trousers round his ankles, dear man, to the cupboard only to meet Mr. Mouse coming in the opposite direction. But what are we going to do? I said, frowning as hard as I could so as to make it perfectly clear that none of this was okay. That something had to be done immediately. Was this... Dad walked in, serving only, it seemed to amplify Mum's hysterics. <laughs> hello, hello, he said brightly. Did did Mr. Mouse get caught in your cords, darling? Oh my god! What's that? Oh, gosh, <laughs> yes, you heard, Georgie. A bit of a run in with Mrs. Mouse last night. Mrs. <laughs> <laughs> He continued, going over to my mother, who was now bent double, clinging to the edge of the table for support and planting a big kiss on her cheek. Got caught with my trousers round my ankles, <laughs> he said, guffawing. My mother tried her best to add something to the fun. I, I said joy. <laughs> with Dad following close behind. You. But it was no use. The new arrival in isolation had reduced both parents to gobbledygook, and it was becoming clear that neither one of them had any interest in discussing the rodent infestation, but planned instead to treat the whole situation with a level of recklessness that I considered to be not only irresponsible, but downright selfish. I got up and went for a walk. It wasn't until I was halfway down the lane that I realised I had left my phone on the table in the kitchen. Whilst this was utterly horrible, it was also very surprising to me. I hadn't been without it since I'd gone into captivity three weeks previously, and thanks to Apple in all their infinite wisdom, I was all too aware of the devastating increase in screen time that had taken place as a result. That's weird, I thought, as I meandered through the village, which seemed mercifully to be empty. What's happening to me? Like most people, my phone is an extension of me, another appendage far more precious than any of the bothersome corporeal ones that are actually connected to my body. Which made the fact I'd been mindless enough to leave it behind, on the table, in broad daylight, when the minute before I'd been tapping away merrily on it, all the more alarming. To me, it seemed to demonstrate a sort of sloppiness, and... Oh, let's be present today, shall we? Why not? Hey, it's all right. There's masses to do in the countryside and you don't need to text anyone or check in with Mal. You can miss a couple calls from Phoebe. It's fine. And Instagram can wait. Come on, look at the birds and the trees and let's go a-rambling, yeah! Kind of attitude. And I didn't like it. Not one bit. Am I? I can't be. Can I? Is this acquiescence? I stopped in the middle of the road to mull things over. It didn't take long to come to the conclusion that I was still me, normal, regular George, 22, Bristol, Uni, and that this was a fluke a momentary lapse of judgment. Still, it didn't take away from the fact that I was stuck without a phone in the middle of rural Somerset, reluctant to return home to a house overrun with mice and madness. Pull yourself together, George, I thought, as I marched on up the hill towards the look. Having spent the better part of 20 years trying my very hardest to find things to fill up the arable abyss that one faces in the gaps between breakfast, lunch, and dinner in a place like Little Lockage, I feel I can speak with a fair amount of authority on the subject of whether or not there is anything to do in the countryside. And I'm really sorry to report that, despite going to great lengths to prove the opposite to be true, The answer is sod all. The root of the problem is time. In the countryside, there is an outrageously large amount of the stuff. Hours upon hours upon seemingly endless hours of it. While in a town or a city, there never seems to be enough time in the day to complete even the most sparsely populated to-do list, in a village, it's quite easy to doze off for months. Truly. Months, in the lush, quilted grass of a balmy bank someplace, wake up and, as a result of some horrible provincial witchcraft, discover that while you were sleeping, the earth stopped spinning on its axis. I'm sure it's been the cause of a great deal of bafflement and debate in even the most preeminent circles of temporal scholarship over the years, with lots and lots of theories advanced as to why, as soon as one leaves an urban area for a rural one, time seems, mysteriously, to stand still. But, to me, the answer's always been fairly obvious. Movement. Or a lack of it. The city, and everything in it, moves all the time, but the boonies, well, they're at a constant standstill. Take London, for simplicity's sake. Look out of any window, anywhere in London, any time of day or night, and there will be as much movement framed in that one teeny weeny image as there is in the most sensationally electrifying sequence of the most thrilling action movie of all time. Imagine the scene with me, just for a moment, just to see how it feels. I dare you. Interior. Central London apartment. Morning. No, actually, wait. Um, interior. Expensive-looking contemporary bachelor pad. Islington, maybe. Yes, Islington. Or is it made of veil? Vale? Whatever. You're in my head. My fantasy, my rules. Interior, Hugh Grant's flat in About a Boy, early morning. And you're Hugh, okay? So you've just woken up and pad padded your way downstairs loosely. Bit of a headache, nothing calamitous. It's the price you pay for putting your feet up the night before in front of your brand new 400-inch 10K LED TV in your cashmere PJs on your ridiculously comfy sofa and drinking one too many ice-cold Peronis occupational hazard of being that cool. Anyway, there you are. 7.30am. Not because you want to be up then or have to, but because it's just when you wake up. Because you're that guy. Independent. Up at 7.30. On your own timetable. Early bird catches the worm. But you're also fine letting the worm chill for a bit too. Whatever. You're Hugh Grant consummate London cool guy, and you're standing in your trackies, surrounded by stainless steel, rubbing the sleep from your eyes. Got it? You want coffee. You go to your fridge. Yes, fridge. People like you always keep coffee beans in the fridge. It's a thing. But this isn't just any old fridge. It's a smeg. Goes the smeg as you open it. And... Like you're in a Grolsch commercial, out come rippling waterfalls of beautiful, fresh, ice-cold condensation. Inside, things are looking extremely good. Jack came yesterday. Let's call Hughes Cleaner Jack. I like the idea of having a kindly housekeeper called Jack, a sort of modern-day Jeeves. And he did some shopping and he's organised everything brilliantly, each shelf colour coordinated, every label front facing rows on rows of bottled coconut water aligned perfectly like soldiers standing to attention. Little pots of that weird kefir yoghurt stuff Rich, healthy people eat. Fruit and veg drawers with individual one-person portion-sized bags of peppers and carrots and celery sticks, all symmetrical, all chopped up with unimaginable uniformity. Hang on a minute. Where's the Joe? It seems, what with all the excitement of chopping carrots, Jack's forgotten to buy any coffee beans. No prob, you think? I'll just pop out and get some, because you can. Because you're Hugh, and lest we forget, dear reader, you're in London, where there are coffee shops, from global chains to hipster hideouts. Everywhere. You throw on a coat over your pyjamas, something trendy and barber-like, worrying very little about what people will think of you striding forth through the streets in nightwear. This being the capital city where anything goes and anything's possible. And then, opening the door, that's when it hits you. A blast of unstoppable kinetic energy. Buses and taxis swerve in and out and around and around one another like they're dancers engaged in some never-ending cosmic dance. Trains clatter across bridges over barges bobbing up and down canals beside bell-twanging cyclists, hogging teeming towpaths that lead to parks full of ponds and puddles and people and buggies bearing bellowing babies pushed by parents on phones slurping from straws on their way to playgroup. People, millions of twitching, talking, terrified of being late, bundles of energy everywhere, just fighting the good fight, keeping on, keeping on. And then, as if that wasn't enough for poor Hugh to have to get his hungover head around, there are another million people underneath it all burrowing around like rabbits in a warren, screeching and scraping their way through a skull-scratchingly complicated system of tunnels and passages and subways and underpasses. Leave the house. Look out of the window. Whatever you do in London, you'll find everything, everywhere, endlessly in motion. Is that image firmly in your mind's eye? Good. Now, I know it's boring, but for parity's sake, let's do the same thing in the countryside and have a pootle through little lockage and see what we can see. Luckily for you, I've just this minute done that very thing without a phone and so am especially well-placed to give you a decently comprehensive description of the sights and sounds of Somerset. Ready? Deep breath. (gasps) Exterior, the lane, little lockage, morning. Your name is George Eldridge. You're 22. You have brown hair, eyes, a nose, mouth. Beyond which, on the subject of your distinctive and discernible features, there is nothing more to add. And every man, people are highly unlikely to notice you in a crowd. But it doesn't bother you because you don't like standing out. Especially not here, especially not in the village you grew up in. Where taking an innocent stroll down the lane is like running a gauntlet backwards through time. With every cottage and every farmhouse, every paddock and estate comes the terrifying possibility of small talk. And even worse, the chance of embarrassing, nostalgic Reminiscence with your neighbours. If, when I say neighbours, you are imagining the city kind, the ones you live cheek by jowl with but who, graciously and compassionately, never deign to disturb you with their news or the news of their children, or the news of their aunts, husbands, sisters, first cousins, labradoodle puppies, think again. These are people you've known all your life, some of whom knew you as a baby, babysat you even. Good, honest folk that watched you grow up, attended your birthdays, let you ride their horses when, as a six-year-old, you foolishly expressed an interest, nothing but a passing comment mind in horseback riding to your mother only to watch her call Sue Hetherington the very next second and find yourself half an hour later completely discombobulated, shaking like a leaf, hurtling around the parkland of Lockage Manor astride Sofa Can Fast, her huge ex-racing thoroughbred, whilst she and your mother watched cackling like hyenas, repeating the horse's name over and over again in bad Australian accents. So fucking fast! So fucking fast! So fucking fast! (laughs) What fun! (laughs) These are the village people. Neighbours who know everything about you. More than you can possibly imagine, but with whom you have not had a real relationship since you became a spotty, disinterested adolescent, only emerging sweaty and smelly and pale and pubescent from your grotto to go to school and then, latterly, to leave for university, ne'er to return. Or so you thought. You creep through the village hoping the cawing crows nesting in the trees lining the road will provide you with enough cover to make it to the look undetected. You're pissed off, which is tiresome in itself. The day had begun well, all things considered, until it was derailed by Mrs Mouse and the ruckus thereof. In fact, you're annoyed. You have to be out here at all, escaping your parents, wondering how it is that you could have been so unlucky as to have ended up with them in the first place. You walk on, looking ahead, your nose like a rudder pointed hopefully towards the horizon. Fortunately, your progress through the village goes unchallenged, and as Country Lane, with its laurel-hedged lawns pricked with poppies and primroses, becomes cracked, stony farm track, and as farm track, steadily overwhelmed by the free, feral pasture of open field, eventually disappears, you find yourself at the top of the hill, like a river that has finally reached the sea. There isn't any wind today, and so hypnotised by the serenity of your surroundings, the ear-shattering tranquillity of it all, you do the only thing you can do on Lockage Look. You look. And you look. And look. And look down towards the neighbouring village of Lockage and out over the valley beyond. And all you see, rolling on and out in every direction, is a green ocean of stillness. No buses or taxis or cars. No clattering or bobbing. No twanging bells. No twitching. No talking. No movement at all. You sit there and look and the only way you know you're alive, that the earth is still turning, that you're not stuck in time, is by staring at the sun as it makes its way across the sky. Phew. Got there in the end. Well done us. So, to conclude, in the countryside, nothing moves and so neither do the clocks. Incidentally, I'm really sorry if you found this thought experiment complicated or taxing. I really don't want you to feel at all embarrassed if you found it difficult to keep up. Like I said, it's boggled some of the brainiest eggheads on the planet. It's just, Little Lockage is a global centre for boredom research and, well, I guess I'm an authority on the subject. In actual fact, it was up here on the look that I first began to suspect that there might be more to things than just Little Lockage. That maybe, just maybe... Somerset wasn't it. As a child, my world had a population of about 20. There was my mum and my dad, a collection of two or three family members existent out of the nuclear, a handful of friends from my primary school, a villager here and a villager there, and the postman. That was it. That was the world according to George. When I was very little, mum and dad would read to me all the time. Roald Dahl, Enid Blyton, that kind of thing. But my mother was ardently against letting children sit in front of screens for hours on end, so I didn't really watch much TV until I finished primary school. The odd bit of Pokemon, Dragon Ball Z on a Saturday morning. But other than that, my early childhood was barren of anything that might have helped transport me from rural England. And by the time I'd finished primary school, I wasn't really interested in cartoons anyway. I wanted to watch wrestling, like everyone else, but we didn't have Sky, and so that was off the cards. We did, however, have dial-up internet. AOL, if memory serves. But you couldn't use it when someone was talking on the landline, and unsurprisingly, my parents were late to the whole mobile phone thing, so inevitably, when you wanted to use it, it was always out of action. Besides, the router thing me was so slow and made such a petrifying sound when you turned it on that we never really used it anyway. So, surrounded by a seemingly endless carpet of undulating greenery and accompanied wherever I went by a soundtrack of relentless birdsong, for a long time the only way I knew anything of the outside world was by watching terrestrial television. I mean, I had a hunch, of course. A sneaking suspicion that there was something else beyond the hills. I'd pick up little soundbites at the dinner table every night, tantalising glimpses of life. Wonderful, terrifying, fast-moving, hard-edged life, bubbling away somewhere like a distant volcano spitting out lava on the horizon, ready to erupt. What's more, being an only child, having no one else to talk to my age at the dinner table... It was inevitable that, like the puppy that chases the ball, I wanted to engage with and understand the more mature topics of conversation going on around me. I remember being desperate to know why it was that this Tony Blair guy getting a third term was considered historic. Finding out what a third term was would have been a start. And then there was a girl at my school, Katrina was her name, and I remember thinking how strange it was that everyone was talking about a hurricane in America that was named after her. There were bits and pieces, breadcrumbs, everywhere I looked. Never enough to know anything for sure, but more than enough to keep me enthralled. To add insult to injury there was, you guessed it, only one TV in the house, so the process of choosing something to watch as a family was never much fun, and neither was it tied remotely to what I felt like watching. And with only five channels to choose from, and let's face it, there never was and never will be anything to watch on Channel 5, pickings were slim for us all. Now, My mum has something of a penchant for romantic comedies. Perhaps I've mentioned it before. Some people drink to get out of it. Some have sex. Some do drugs. Mum watches When Harry Met Sally. And somehow, somewhere along the way, she managed to convince my dad that there was something even better than watching a made-for-TV Agatha Christie adaptation on a Wednesday evening. So that was that rom-coms it would be good ones bad ones long ones short ones every single evening after dinner since before i can remember and you know what i'll admit it i caught the bug sitting there with my over sentimental parents ensconced and dabbing our swollen eyes i too became totally addicted to the will-they-won't-they's of Bridget and Mark, Will and Anna, Harry and Sally. And after a while, I was as bad as them. Couldn't get enough of the schmaltz. But I was young, and so, like anyone that has never actually kissed another human being on the lips before, quite reasonably considering the act of putting one's lips on someone else's for any length of time to be unnatural at the very least, For me, it wasn't about the love stuff. For me, it was about the life stuff. It was the exotic places in which these people lived. The weird and wonderful jobs they did, the cars they drove, and the weekend mini-breaks they went on that compelled me. I lived in the middle of nowhere. I went to school at the local primary. I came home every day to the same house I'd lived in all my life. To my normal parents. But then at the same time, I was hearing them talk about a man named George Bush who'd started a terrible war, and the troubling oil prices, and the scandalous divorce of two people called Charles and Diana, and then there were the mortgages, and the car MOTs, not to mention the NHS, and then All that wasn't enough to knock my little socks off. I'd go into the TV room with my pyjamas on and find Renée Zellweger being allowed to gallivant around London in her underwear, only to be told that Colin Firth still loved her, just as she was. It was more than an impatient, aspirational 11-year-old country bumpkin could take. I felt I was being cheated, not being allowed to know and feel and experience and share in this big, wide world. I didn't want to read it or see it. I didn't want to wait to grow up and find it. I wanted to live it. It was almost as if, somewhere along the way, someone had shown me an amazing trailer for a film called... Being an adult, and it looked like the most exciting, rip-roaring, action-packed film that had ever been made, and I just could not wait to go and see it. In a world where nobody's a kid, a group of people over the age of 18 come together to do one thing and one thing only, grown-up shit in the most exciting rip-roaring action-packed adventure of the summer see full-grown human beings washing up paying taxes driving cars staying up late and doing whatever the fuck they want george eldridge stars in being an adult it actually sounds like a great film i jumped up from where i was sitting wheeled around on the spot as fast as i could and found to my horror that i was not alone not at all I was standing face-to-face with a girl who had an American accent and pink hair. What? Uh, well, uh, uh, w- hi, um, was I- You were talking to yourself, yes, in, uh, was that an American accent? Yeah, um, right, right, okay, I thought, yeah, okay, um, right, I mean- This was it. This was too much now. This was the pits. I never wanted to be here in the first place. I had been forced out of my house, forced from safety, phoneless, a refugee from rodents, and now I was standing on the top of a big hill in the middle of buttfuck nowhere Somerset talking bollocks to a total stranger. Um, I was so embarrassed that I sort of couldn't do anything but breathe. You're good, really. I only just got here. A compassionate American girl with pink hair on the top of Lockage look. This might turn out to be the strangest encounter of my entire life, I thought. Thanks. I'm really sorry. I I was just... Seriously, rated R is all I got. Do you do voiceovers? No! God, no! I, um... Well, I guess what I, um... Yeah, um... There really isn't another way of saying this, is there. I sometimes do film trailers... About my life, out loud. Not often. They're they're in in my head, but, well, you, so, also, not in my head. Maybe you should. What? Do voiceovers. Oh, oh, (laughs) right. (laughs) I laughed. Quite coolly, I think. She just stood there, smiling at me breezily, as if she really, truly didn't think I was a weirdo. She was wearing a pair of very loose-fitting blue jeans, below a big white knitted jumper, which all hung limply from a thread-like frame. She had very delicate skin, which I want to say was dark, but was actually as pale as skin comes, the kind that starts life being called milky or ivory, but which, on her, had worn closer to a kind of sickly grey. Once bright, it seemed to have lost its shine. She was the colour of the keys on a piano that's been played too much. Weirdly, it only served to make her bright, easy-going smile, miles wide and with lots of very white teeth in it, stand out even more. She had eye sockets like craters, which made the intensity of their chalky blue inhabitants, little and orb-like, completely inescapable. I guessed that this wasn't her natural hair colour, but she suited it, whoever she was, so much so that if she told me she'd been born pink, I'd have had no trouble believing her. It was shoulder length and cut into a fringe which was quite long and parted in the middle. The fringe missed her eyes, instead framing them perfectly, before coming to rest either side of her face, atop two very keen cheekbones. I remember making a particular mental note of this detail, as it struck me that in order to achieve it, to get the hair to behave itself so well, I mean, she would have had to have worked for hours to coax it into position. But her demeanour, the happy-go-lucky, easy way in which she held herself, the way in which she seemed so unjudgmental, was totally incompatible with the idea that she'd be the kind of person who'd struggle for hours and hours just to accomplish a certain hairstyle. What I mean is, her well-mannered hair was at odds with her carefree smile, and her carefree smile was at odds with the darkness under her eyes. Do you mind? She pointed at the log I'd been sitting on just a moment before. Of course, I said. Stepping out of her way, giving this very small person a comically wide berth. (laughs) Six feet, right? (laughs) Haha, yeah. What is wrong with you? All I seemed able to do was laugh breathily and nod like a loony. She just kept smiling. How are you so... I thought. Then she turned, plopped herself down unceremoniously on the log and said... It's so... still... here. I shit you not, I almost shouted, Yes! Finally! Thank you! But resisted, feeling she was already far too familiar with my inner monologue. Yeah. Yeah, it's kinda, isn't it? I said, as if I'd only just noticed... Not knowing what to do with my face when addressing the stranger, I decided to scrunch it up and squint in a kind of, the sun's in my eyes but I'm still thinking about stuff, sort of a way. My hands didn't seem very sure of themselves either, so I put one on the back of my head fluffing and scratching, to add to the whole pensive look I was going for, and placed the other on my hip, squeezing hard. My stance had remained unchanged since we'd met, but she was now sitting down in front of me, facing away, which brought a whole new and, may I add, totally erroneous attitude to the bearing of my body. Squinting and sniffing, staring at this girl, one hand flat on the back of my head, one on my hip, it now looked like, well, like I was trying to be provocative. So, do you live here? I said, putting my hands in my pockets and walking out in front of her, trying to sound as disinterested as possible, so as to remove any notion she might have about me being some kind of rural sex maniac. No? She said plainly. And then, quite a few seconds later, Do you? Yeah, just a... well, yes. It's beautiful here she said. And then there was a beat, in which she seemed perfectly happy just sitting in complete silence, looking out over the sun-filled valley. Totally content she was, sharing this moment. It was like she preferred it that way, that I didn't know her, and she didn't know me so I obliged and stood there pretending to be awed by a vista whose every inch I'd examined a thousand times before. The problem was, for me, I mean, that if we had been stumbled upon there and then by some passing ramblers or some sheep, they would think we were in some kind of, well, you know, that we were friends or something, stopping to take in the view. They'd take from our silence that we were completely comfortable in each other's company and had come here together to enjoy it together but we weren't and we hadn't and whilst in her annoying American way she might have been very happy to do something as intimate as silently taking the scenery with someone she'd never met before I was not Plus, I was furious I'd neglected to say, when answering her question about where I lived, that I had grown up here, but did, in fact, escape some time ago and was now back here unwillingly. But, well, actually, I live in Bristol. I'm at university there, but, well, my parents live here. Oh, you seem all for college, she said. Maybe it's the accent. The British wine, I mean. Was that a... Did I want to look old? Did she hope that I was older? Oh, shut up, I thought. Really? Oh, thanks, I guess. Everyone... everything seems older. In England? In Little Lockage. She giggled when she said Little Lockage, as if she knew how funny it sounded when it came out of her mouth. Oh, right, <laughs> yeah, Every everyone, everything is old here, I said. She smiled her toothy grin again, then turned back to look at the view. It's a compliment, by the way, she said, without looking. What is? I said, to look older, wiser, it's a good thing. Then she turned to me and, in a whisper, said, more manly after which she held my gaze for what felt like a very very long time and then she burst out laughing <laughs> i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm i'm not a creep i'm not a creep i'm sorry i'm just i'm just bored i'm i swear i'm not i'm 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 sorry it's it's fine don't don't worry about it it's it's i shrugged it off smiling i mean It was fine. It was intense and strange and, well, it was horrible, actually. Who the fuck was this weird girl? But those ten seconds were probably the most thrilling I had had since I got back home. And shit, she's getting up. I'm Lucy, she said, offering her hand. Is this allowed? I guess, I said, shaking it, feeling my cheeks go a bit red. I'm George. Pleasure to meet you, George. You're not going that way, are you? She said, letting go of my hand and pointing in the direction of the village. Uh Uh-huh, I said. Me too. Shall we? Yeah, all right. And so we began to walk. She was the sort of person who asked lots and lots of good, penetrating questions, but when asked something herself, gave almost nothing away. I, on the other hand, managed to divulge to her exactly where I lived. It's just at the bottom of the lane, uh, Willow Tree Cottage, it's called. There's a little bridge and then you go over and... Where are you, um... Does the bridge go over a river? Yeah, actually the river runs through my garden. You're kidding, do you swim in it? Who my parents were yeah so they're retired now they were teachers but well actually dad still teaches music a bit at a school in bath he loves it says he'd rather die than stop working think he's struggling a bit with this whole staying at home thing at the moment though he's um they're in the vulnerable category whatever so they really have to be careful right yeah yeah what are your parents and it makes total sense the whole work till he drop mentality you know especially if he's doing something valuable and a myriad other bits of sensitive information pertaining to who I was and how I spent my time. And so, on the relatively short walk back down the hill into the village, I learned just two things about Lucy. Number one, she had come to Little Lockage from Los Angeles, California, presumably by way of one of the major London airports, for a holiday to... take some time out, she had said. Number two... She had got stuck in little lockage when both her country and mine had gone into lockdown as a result of the coronavirus and was now awaiting the return of regularly scheduled programming when she would be able to go back home. I was gearing up to ask her how old she was and whether she was at uni, readying myself for another round of what was beginning to feel more like conversational squash than tennis when we reached the square, which was to my shock and spine-chilling dismay, full of people, standing two metres apart from one another in a circle shape around the big cherry tree that marks the centre of the village. My mum and dad, who hadn't noticed me yet, were standing in their wellies on the other side of the tree, the side closest to our house. As for everyone else in the circle... I recognised them all immediately, every single one, and knew exactly what pink-haired Lucy and I had just walked straight into the middle of. The lion's den, I thought, my heart sinking, my mouth going dry. It was the weekly meeting of the socially distanced Little Lockage Parish Council. Was written, read, and produced by Sebastian de Souza. The cover art was designed by Bannister, and it was a one of the good guys production.